Good morning, Kirk. How are you doing? You just showed me a picture when you tilted your camera the other way that it's snowing in Virginia right now. I've got to wonder, is that one of the reasons why you're a Miami hurricane? <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I chose to go to college in Florida because we we didn't deal with that here. And I was born and raised here in Virginia and wanted to get a little warm weather with, with the college experience. So that is definitely why. So go Canes. <laughs> <laughs> Miami, Kirk, Miami Kirk Wiles. I like it. Right. So you are one of the founders of Paradise Springs Winery in Virginia. Tell us a little bit about the history of the winery and how you got involved. Sure. Really, we ended up in the wine industry out of necessity here. We, we have a property that's actually been in my family since 1716. Uh, it was an original land grant from Lord Fairfax as a second Virginia family coming over late 1600s and then was granted this land in 1716. And it's been in our family nine generations. And we, my great aunt passed away in 2005 and left it to my mother. And it wasn't set up very well to transfer and Land in Fairfax County now has become so expensive that we were hit with a pretty big inheritance tax bill on it and almost lost the farm. And it prompted us to have the conversation of what are we going to do with this place? We were able to save it, but what are we going to do with this place? And, and could we find a vehicle to, to make it work for us where we could hold on to the farm for hopefully another nine generations? And my mother had the great idea of wanting to turn it into a Virginia winery and Virginia wine was on the rise, but she had always supported Virginia wines and had loved drinking them throughout her years here. And And I was fresh out of college back here. And one drunken night up at the, the log cabin here on the farm, we we she talked about that. And I took the range and said, let's figure out how to do it. And, and we never looked back. So that was how we ended up turning this place into a winery. And today in Virginia, now we're producing anywhere from 10 to 12,000 cases of wine a year. We're the closest winery to Washington, D.C., right in Clifton on the edge of Fairfax County. There's another winery that did open in Fairfax County down the road, but we helped pave the way for that because in our battle to get open, we had a two and a half year legal battle over zoning here and a right to agriculture and all the things that come with wineries and alcohol and tasting and the things that governments love to hear. (laughs) And we had to teach them how Virginia and Virginia wine was able to do that and how the state laws were in our favor. And nowhere in their nice, massive zoning manual did it have a farm winery definition, but the state does and the state um, over supersedes the county law. And and so we had to fight that for about two and a half years for our right to get open. And once we did, we opened to a great fanfare because people really resonated with the story of of saving an old generational family farm. It's like this big government sort of moves in and creates all of these entities and these laws and rules all the way around what you have. And you've just been here and taken care of it. And then all of a sudden you're told you can't do what you want to do as a principal use with your own property, which is ridiculous. Um, We were very thankful that we were able to persevere in in that endeavor. And I think a lot of people have, have come to Paradise Springs now and found happiness or found some really cool things to, to share. Some of the think best decisions that I've made as far as the Stephen Kent winery is concerned happened over a couple of bottles of wine. So I <laughs> I get where the zeitgeist of that meeting with your mother. How old were you at that time? I was 23, 22, 23. So out of college and I was on my fast track to Wall Street working as a, a structured finance analyst and financial modeler. And, and then the market fell out in 07, 08. And 
Right. It was those conversation had started in 2006 that we had with that. But yeah, it puts me at 23 years old. Do you think about at this point, what would have happened had the economy not gone into the toilet right around this time? Would you have done, would you be on Wall Street now? Would the winery exist? I think the winery was, we were going down the route to, to do that before the economy tanked. But would I have stayed here to run it? I, I don't know. That's a good question. I was young and looking for opportunity and while I was good at doing the finance stuff, it was a miserable existence sitting at a desk on an Excel spreadsheet and long hours. And that's not really what I'm passionate about. I was good at it, but I think everything happens for a reason and ultimately led to doing something that I'm passionate with wine, but not just that, but creating something. I think the creative outlet of creating a brand and being your own boss and be able to make those decisions for yourself and then see them work and see people enjoy them, whether it's your stories or your branding or the way that you've designed a tasting room or bought furniture and to really see people come and enjoy that, I think is, is an ultimate reward of that along with the great wines that we're making in Virginia and, and the meteoric rise of Virginia wine coincided a little bit with our existence and, and coming into light. Cause I think it showed a lot of people that we could take old family farms and, and invest money and capital into creating wineries and planting vineyards in Virginia and, it's brought this new wave of investment to Virginia when people saw right. that we were able to take a, a great property in Fairfax County to do that. So that was cool. I, I enjoyed that and I still enjoy it to this day. The, the creativity aspect of doing what we do, it certainly extends further than just what get what gets done in the cellar. You know, what, yep. what happens in the vineyard, varietal choices, that sort of stuff, as well as wine styles. Um, it's that's the thing that's a bomb for me, as it were. I have a, a literature background and wanted to write books. Actually, that did come to pass relatively recently. But the idea of being able to create something that's beautiful and that it brings people joy and is delicious and can help pay the bills checks all of those boxes from a creator standpoint. Absolutely. And you're right. With wine, we're bound to a lot of what's planted in the vineyard and, and the experimentation is not there like a beer industry is, right? They can crank out a new flavor every three weeks or, or a cider industry. Creativity in our part comes from branding something or presentation of something or and telling those stories and, and having people experience it in a different way, whether that's with food or, or out by a fire pit in the snow today. And their creativity is different in the way we do things in the wine industry. And hopefully the, the quality of the product shines through with all of that. And so, yeah. It's an interesting, you bring up beer, you bring up cider and hard alcohol, a similar kind of uh, yearly trajectory. You can make a bunch of different batches. You can do a lot of experimentation in a single calendar year. We are cursed and blessed with one harvest a year, right? And so there's a different kind of pace, I think, with the creativity that goes on, especially from a wine, from a varietal choice standpoint. If you planted a vineyard, it takes five to seven years to get usable fruit for your first harvest. Mm -hmm. And it's a very expensive proposition. If you find out all of a sudden that the market has changed or, or that you don't like what you planted, there's a long road to hoe to get to something different. Does that kind of reality change how you think about the business at all? Or does it lend itself to a, a time and a, a rhythm from a presentation and direct-to-consumer sure. aspect that might be different? 
Absolutely. I think, to be honest, one of the ways that we started this business was walking that backwards path, right? We, we started doing Custom Crush and was able to purchase fruit and partner with some vineyards to do that. But that sort of allowed us to do some trial and error. What varietals are consumers wanting to, to drink and what is planted well here in Virginia? The first wine that we ever made here in 2007 was a Cabernet Sauvignon, and it was a great wine. But over the years, we've learned that Cab Sauv is a very site-specific style of wine here in Virginia, and you have to have a great site to consistently produce it year in and year out. Otherwise, there's inconsistencies with it. And since that trend, in 2007, Cab Sauv was the most widely planted grape in Virginia. People have really navigated to Cab Franc here in Virginia because consistently year in and year out, we can make an exceptional wine with it. And so I think the experimentation that we were able to do in the early days allowed us to do a lot of sort of trial and error on different varietals. We were able to do Norton and Tanat and Petit Mensang, Petit Verdot, in addition to Chardonnay and Cab Sauve and Merlot and Cab, and test these wines in the marketplace, but also work with them from a growing standpoint year in and year out. And I think really that played to an advantage for us in being able to build a strong lineup. And as we've backwards our way into the industry and have acquired vineyards or planted vineyards and continue to grow that side of the business for us, we're able to do that in the right way with the right varietal on the right site to ultimately make the best Virginia wine that we possibly can. So I was reading a little bit about your area and had read that that one of the founders of town had had tried to get into the wine business early on and this would have been in the seven late 1700s early early 1800s and had a, a similar kind of uh lack of success as thomas jefferson did famously what is it about or wh- when did the virginia wine thing actually happen to the extent that Virginia farmers and winemakers knew that it could be sustaining. Yeah, Virginia wine existed pre-prohibition. Act 10 of the original constitution of the United States in Jamestown actually required every house to plant and tend 10 grapevines on their property right here in Virginia. We were the first U.S. state to actually make wine in the United States. And Obviously, that didn't work. And and Jefferson's dream from his travels of going to France and bringing that back here didn't work because we didn't have the research, the education and the weather here was susceptible to organic growing. And so things didn't work in those favors back then. But Virginia wine came back in the 1900s and pre-prohibition and then prohibition killed off the industry here again. But some of the original cuttings of Norton made their way to Missouri and Post-prohibition, a couple wineries came back, and that's when it started back up again. Some of those original cuttings of Norton came back to Virginia. A few winery pioneer ones came in, Barbersville, Gabrielle Rossi, and some of the early adopters of Virginia wine back in, in the 70s was the new coming of it. And it trucked along a little bit for a couple decades, and, and no one really knew where it was going to go. And I think right about the time that we started to get into it, you Early 2000s, in 2002, 2003, you probably had 75 wineries in the state, right? We went and applied for our license in 2006. And we didn't get our license till 2010 because of all the court cases. But when we finally got our license, we opened as the 156th winery in the state of Virginia. So from 2002 to 2010, you had a doubling of the industry in eight years. And then today in Virginia, we have about 330 wineries throughout the state. 
So you've seen more than a, a doubling since we have even opened. And you've seen a lot of wineries change hands and brands change hand and, and vineyards being acquired and, and planted and things like that. And, and so I think you, right around the time that we came into it, I, I think people were starting to realize that you can make great Virginia wine and the laws here were susceptible to agritourism, which allowed us to really present our product to people and have them find it in a creative way. And ultimately that's really what the Virginia wine industry still thrives on today is visitation to the vineyards and agritourism. And while the demand internationally and wholesale is, is starting to tick up a little bit, it's not the bread and butter of this industry yet. We are still fighting that stigmatism of Virginia wine that existed 30, 40 years ago. And, and really only in the last decade or two have come into our own as far as adapting and, and owning what grows well here. And then a lot of talent from a winemaker standpoint and investment coming in to be able to ultimately produce those great wines here and present them well. You're the, you're, Paradise Springs is the closest winery by proximity to Washington, D.C. It is. Which, about 23 miles as the crow flies. And D.C. is a, a, obviously a very big wine market and an important wine market. A lot of great food there. A lot of people from all over the world living in D.C. So you've got a very cosmopolitan and a very educated wine-consuming market. How big a role does D.C. play in, in Paradise Springs' visitation and, and the overall business? I, it plays a major role. I, I think D.C. per capita is the largest wine market in the United States. When you talk about the amount of people and wine consumption and purchasing, it, it is the biggest market in the United States. A lot of people, you have the government here, so there's government insulation with contracts and money and, and politics, right. all of that, that, that plays a role. You have transient people moving here and moving out with administrations and different politicians and their staffs and everything. And so you get a lot of people coming in and out. And so there is a good tourism market here that exists. But we also still fight those French imports and Napa cabs that a lot of people have grown to equate to the best wines in the world. And, and so people have that stigma of that's what's good wine. And so what is Virginia right next door? And so we're, we've been fighting that uphill battle, but I think the food and farm to table movement has really helped Virginia wine in that regards, where places really want to adapt that, try that a little bit more and chefs are willing to give it more of a, a chance, but it's still expensive to produce Virginia wine here because of the weather and the programs in the vineyard. And so we don't necessarily have those $10 bottle of wine that, that is exceptional quality that people can in the wholesale trade. And so you don't have the volume and the price point to do massive amounts of wholesale. So it's much more of a boutique product and it has to be placed in the right location. So are DC and Alexandria and Northern Virginia restaurateurs supportive of Virginia wines? Do they look at Virginia wines as a curiosity at this point that eh, maybe at some point when you guys grow up a little bit, the thing uh, or, or describe, because c- coming from Livermore Valley, just because we're California winemakers doesn't mean all of a sudden that you're going to be on a, a, an even footing from a sales standpoint with Sonoma County or Napa or Paso Robles even at this point in time. We're constantly having to prove ourselves as even though we're, we're one of the oldest wine growing regions and a world-class growing area, we still fight this fight. Of, of being perceived as less even before, even without having tasted the wines. Are, what, what, what kind of reception do you guys get in the marketplace? 
I think it's getting better. You certainly have people who are supportive of it, people that are open to it. And then you have people who just don't care. They're in their restaurant to make a profit, right? And and it's hard to compete against some of those really cheap imports where the consumer just sees, oh, France or Napa, okay. And they don't really know the mass production behind it or what what the origin of that is. And it's super disappointing because I think it starts with the consumer asking more questions and being more aware of what's local. You go over to Paris, right? If you go over to Paris and travel, are you going to ask for a Napa cab sitting in Paris? No, you're you're going to want to drink the best French wine when you're there, right? You you go to Italy and you're not going to drink French wine when you're in Italy, you're going to drink Italian wine. And so Why, when people come to Virginia or Washington, D.C., are they not drinking our wines that are made right here in the back backyard? We also have a winery in Santa Barbara County. And I go down there and you look at restaurant lists and it's dominated by Santa Barbara County wines. People want to drink what's local. It's a little disappointing that more restaurateurs locally here in the area have not adopted that yet. I think they will. But there's an, an onus on, I think, Virginia winery owners to get their best products into the wholesale market at a reasonable cost. We live in a direct-to-consumer world here where we can sell our best wines and sell out of them at the tasting room. And we're not setting some of those aside to put into the marketplace to help market brands and, and Virginia wine as a whole. And I think we need to do more of that if we want to continue to gain recognition and market share, which in turn will come back around to feed the mouth of the wineries if it's done correctly. It's a really interesting dynamic. Every small, there are 45, let's say, wineries, 50 wineries in Livermore, 35 of which are actually active. Half of the wineries here don't make more than a thousand cases a year. So it's really a hobbyist thing. There's a desire, I think, from some of the younger winemakers here to create more of a following for their brands, to maybe branch out a little bit into the larger world. We were invited as an appellation to be involved in the Pebble Beach Food and Wine extravaganza. In order to be able to do that, we had to have three wineries that had wines that were rated by the spectator at 90 points and above. There are only two wineries in the whole appellation that submitted samples to begin with, yeah. and, and which is mind-blowing to me. There's This is a mature wine region to a degree certainly from the standpoint of vineyards and that kind of a thing. And it strikes me as interesting that people try to have it both ways. You want, you complain about the lack of visibility for your brand. You complain about the lack of visitation or lack of sales, yet you're not willing to put your wines out into the larger world where most of the wine in the world is sold, right? Sold through the tier system in the U.S. and sold to, to importers, exporters, the whole bit. That's just an observation. One of the things I find interesting about Virginia, and we'll talk about Santa Barbara in a little bit, because that's a very intriguing part of the story, I think. But there are certain regions that do really well by the wineries that exist there. Santa Barbara County is certainly one of them. The state of Oregon is another one. California Wine in Oregon doesn't do anything. I've tried to get distribution there. It's difficult because they've got their own wine business that they're really trying to protect and and trying to nurture. And that's Uh, great. That's how it should be, right? It's your backyard and it should be that way here in Virginia. It should be that way in Livermore. And you go to Livermore, I don't want to drink Oregon wine. I want to drink your wine. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I, I it, it, indeed, and 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 I'm spending. I'll spend the rest of my career trying to to make a point about that, a larger point about Cab Franc, perhaps, and we'll get more into that in in a minute as well. So you are when when you plant your vineyards, we're talking about the 
2010-ish kind of time frame. What did you originally plant or, or do what you have planted right now is what you started with? We've worked a number of ways. We've actually acquired a vineyard and we've added on to that over the years. But Cab Franc was the thing that we planted here on the estate in 2008 originally. And so that was identified as one of the ones that we really wanted to adopt and, and was known to do well here in Virginia. But since then, things like Petit Mensang and Petit Verdot and Tanat have really had these meteoric rises in Virginia because they grow well here. And we have a forum to be able to present them direct to consumer and talk about that. And then when people get to taste them, they really understand, wow, this is a great dry wine. Mm-hmm. What is this? And they start to learn. And so the consumer has started to learn that now where we had to take those steps to teach that along the way. And so, yeah, all those things are planted at our properties. Of course, we still do Chardonnay. We do a Vidal Blanc, which is an American hybrid grape. We do Merlot. We do Viognier. And at the time when I came into the industry, Viognier sort of was designated as our state grape. I think it was a jump to conclusion on that because I think the marketing-wise, the state was looking to mimic what in Oregon and or, or Napa and some of these other regions were emulating, saying we need something to hang our hat on and here's the thing we're going to do it on. But what they learned was Viognier is tough in the vineyard to establish and is not a huge cropper. And so after designating this, we, we make a fantastic wine with it in Virginia, but the investment in Viognier didn't come because the growers did not want to plant it because it's not the most profitable grape to grow. Right. And so you right. never saw Viognier really take off from a growing standpoint here in Virginia. It was hard to establish and didn't crop well consistently year in and year out, but it makes a fantastic wine here. So it's got a place in Virginia for sure. I remember tasting a, a Horton Viognier from 20 years ago and the wine was really delicious. I don't drink a lot of Viognier, but good versions of all varieties are, are special wines. You brought up an interesting point because this is something that we're going through here in, in our neck of the woods as well. Cab Funk is the most widely planted grape in Virginia from, from an acreage standpoint at this point in time. So when the, this idea of a region needing to have a variety to hang their hat on or as a hook for consumers, is Cabernet Franc playing that role? Do you think that makes sense from the standpoint of the growers and winemakers to have a variety that you can put your arms around as your own? I do, if that's what it ends up being, right? But I'm also a big believer that we shouldn't have to dictate we shouldn't designate that. It should just naturally come. Let the consumer decide, right? Um, ultimately, we can make decisions on what to plant here based on what grows here year in and year out. And if that makes financial sense to wineries and growers, that will naturally work itself out in the wash and the cream will rise to the top. And I think you're starting to see that with this Viognier and Petit saying sort of battle, right? Viognier, people are not planting that, but more people are planting Petit saying because it's safe. We it's bulletproof here in the vineyards with its loose clusters and thick skins and, and the versatility of wine it can make from dessert to dry. Right. And you're starting to see that take form. I was just looking at our, our grape report the other day, and I think Petit Mensang now is the seventh most widely planted grape in the state of Virginia, and Viognier has fallen to fifth. And Cab Franc is obviously one, Chardonnay is still two. But Cab Sauve, what used to be up there at number one, is down to six now. And so I think these things are naturally working themselves out. And rather than us make some proclamation, I think that's um, something that will happen over time and, and the marketplace will dictate that. And ultimately the consumer 
who is asking for these wines will will dictate that. So Cap Franc is certainly in that discussion. It's the most widely planted grape here in Virginia. We You'd be hard-pressed to go into a Virginia winery and not find a designated single varietal Cap Franc. And it's one that that we can't make enough of. We we make about a thousand cases of it a year, and it, it's always one of the first to sell out. That that tells you right there that people are asking for it and wanting it. That that's interesting. I I have maybe a slightly different opinion about it, just in terms of a chicken and egg thing. Mm-hmm. P- Cabernet Franc is um, nowhere in anywhere near the top, probably ten. 15, 20 different varieties planted in California from a tonnage standpoint. I think California last year did about 10,000 tons of Cab Franc, did 250,000 tons of Cabernet Sauvignon. So Cabernet Sauvignon is never going to be, never going to be in second place, let's say. It's always going to be the the king of grapes for California, which is fine. I think there are a lot of regions here that can grow Cabernet, especially warmer growing areas, Livermore Valley, Napa, Paso Robles, that kind of a thing. My thought process on it though is that I'm, I've been pushing hard to have Cab Franc be the variety that Livermore Valley winemakers put their arms around, in part because it grows ex- exceptionally well here, and in part because it's, in my opinion, the most beautiful and the most seductive and alluring and interesting food-friendly wine out there. So there's obviously a very, uh, there's a, an importantly aesthetic reason for our, for Stephen Kent Winery to focus his attention on Cab Franc, but it's also a variety that not a lot of people know about. And my, my thought process on it is that we've got to show people what it is we think grows best in our area. And if that's the grape that ends up winning the competition, as it were, over time, a lot of it will be about because of spreading the message about the specialness of that grape in Livermore Valley that hopefully will bring those consumers in that are tired of cab, tired of Pinot or what have you. And, and because vineyards take so long to establish and because we can't change overnight, my thought is that we've got to put, we've got to, we've got to make a statement about what we're going to be as a region. And then if that doesn't work down the road, then things can change certainly. But I, I, I don't know, maybe you have more, maybe the way you're describing it shows more confidence in sort of the, 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 the consumer or more confidence in this sort of message that we have what you want. You just need to, you know, pick out from a, a number of them what it is? Yeah, I, I think you're probably absolutely right for where you're coming from. You're part of this bigger entity of a state that is known for Cab and Chardonnay, right? Little bit of Pinot in certain pockets here and there. But your Cab is king in California, and it has been since your, the Judgment of Paris in the 70s. And that was a proclamation and the big event that really turned California wine into what it is today. Because before that, it was the Wild West. It was experimentation. It was, what are we doing? It was a bunch of farmers and, and trying to figure that out. And Every so grape planted on the vineyard, no matter whether it was a cool climate yeah. grape or a warm climate grape. Totally. Where Virginia yeah. is today is we are still pre-judgment of Paris. We haven't had that proclamation and that big event yet. We talk about the entire Virginia wine industry. We're only a little over 4,000 acres planted total which is not that big when you think about how big the industry is in California. So for us, we, and maybe this is a little bit of PTSD that the marketing side of things has here is they tried to make this proclamation on Viognier, it didn't work. So I think it's, let's go back and have a wait and see approach and let's see what the market dictates that out to be. 
Will we ever have a Judgment of Paris-like event here in Virginia? I don't know. Maybe not. Back then, given the, the way the media was without social media, everything's so instantaneous now that gratification, everyone's looking for that in an instant. And so what is that big thing that's going to happen that's going to shock the world? I don't know if that's going to come in Virginia. It might be more of a slow roll. And so I think that's where we've taken that sort of attitude and adoption here is let's keep doing what we do and do it well, and then let's see what rises to the top. Whereas you're in a different situation because you're fighting this stigma that already exists from different regions. Your region does something really well. And so you have to hit that narrative head on and attack it and say, no, you're not here to drink cab. You're here to drink cab drunk. So you are in Virginia. Paradise Springs is an established winery after all of the ridiculousness dealing with the state and different definitions of what a farm family farm is and all this kind of stuff. You are perhaps the only bi-coastal brand in America. You have a wine operation in Santa Barbara County as well. How does that happen? Very carefully and a little bit maybe by mistake. So in 2013, we had been open here in the tasting room three years and we were making as much Virginia wine as we possibly could from quality grapes that we could get our hands on. And again, it's coincided with that rise after we got our license with other people going, I can do this too. And so all of a sudden the market to purchase fruit dried up. There was no fruit on the market and people were fighting. They were were going, owners were going, walking to vineyards and saying, I'll give you twice per ton what you're getting from this guy. And then the vineyard owner was going, gosh, I'll take that. And it became a little bit of a blood sport. And so what happened is you had wineries that were starting to plant more and more on their own, but that, like you said, that takes some time to get there. And so I was out in Santa Barbara with some friends or LA and the idea to go up to taste some wines in Santa Barbara was there. And I didn't know much about the region and really had not been. And I was set up through some mutual suppliers and we went up on our sideways journey for a day to taste some wine, no pun intended. And uh, yes. I ended up falling in love with Pinot Noir from Santa Rita Hills. Ended up, the first guy we met actually was Greg Brewer of Brewer Clifton. It turns out what an iconic first meeting that was. And tasting his peanuts was really my aha moment to, wow, this, these are exceptional. And not like anything I've really ever had. They were balanced with alcohol and acidity, really great food-friendly wines. And it was just an exceptional growing region that was producing some incredible wines. And And so the idea to all right, we need to serve some wine here out of our facility because till some of our grapes get up and running, what if we made a Pinot Noir here in Santa Barbara County and and shipped it back to Virginia and and we can somehow tell the story of how went out there and fell in love with it. And Pinot is not something we really do in Virginia. So to give a little bit of a diversification to something we could offer, that was the original idea, but ended up meeting the right people in Santa Barbara, a gentleman named Doug Marjoram, who's been there for 35 years, owns Marjoram Wine Company. Legend there for sure. And we just really hit it off. And so we ended up making a Pinot and a Sauv Blanc in 2014. And then the wines just turned out exceptional that we never shipped them back to Virginia. I ended up making a full lineup in 2015 and we set off on a course to open a tasting room and finally did in 2017 in downtown Santa Barbara. And that's how the second winery was born. And now we have a great operation there and a, and a great club and people come and really enjoy the Santa Barbara County wineries there. But what happened was the idea shifted because instead of just sending wine back to Virginia, it was like, all right, what if we create this other brand and emulate the way that we started here in Virginia? And 
we can open something in a great location, a tasting room and connect with the local audience from a grassroots level on a direct to consumer level and really promote the brand from the ground up in Santa Barbara, just like we did in Virginia. But what happens is we've built this marketing platform between the two entities where club members have reciprocity and can go visit, right? We can share some wines here and share some wines there. So I, I ship some Virginia wines out there and I ship some Santa Barbara wines back here. Not all of them, but a few of them. And, and it keeps things interesting a little bit. Again, the creativity, the ability to change something up where you can't change your vine in the ground, but I can change a varietal that I pour at the tasting room and it gives club members or visitors something new to taste. So the that's worked really well. And, and it's been really fun to make wine in both regions. It's been a learning process for me in how Virginia does things and how Santa Barbara does things, not just from a growing standpoint, winemaking standpoint, but from a sales standpoint, even what are people looking for when they visit? And so that's been really cool exercise in the business of it all to, to figure out and kind of dive. You have separate production teams. You have a production team in Virginia and a production team winemaker in Virginia, winemaker in Santa Barbara County. Yep. Everything we do is completely separate from the winemaking. So everything in Santa Barbara is grown, produced, bottled, labeled, and everything in Santa Barbara County, everything in Virginia is Virginia grown, produced, bottled here. And then when we share wines, we'll ship finished product back and forth through. What a great opportunity for your for your production team. It's almost like the harvests are relatively the same time. So it's not like going to South America to get a second harvesting for the year for a young intern or someone yeah. up and coming. Growing regions are very different. The idea behind vineyard planting is different. And obviously varieties that work well is different. So that must be a really cool thing for, for the winemakers and for the production teams themselves to be able to have this sort of cross-pollination of ideas from one region to another. That works well, I assume. Absolutely. I, and it makes for fun trips. We're a Virginia team here where it's snowing and cold and the tasting room's a little quiet. We're all getting ready to go out there in about a week. Nice. And some new managers are going to get to experience that and expand their wine knowledge. And I remember when we first started Virginia, I did that. I, I went to Napa and I did all the big tours. And from a hospitality standpoint, I learned so much about presentation and on how to give a tour and how to do this. How does a 23-year-old learn about all of that and wine? You got to go experience it yourself. And so right. I think it's a great opportunity for them, just like I have learned a lot from being over there now. God, we actually, I was looking at Doug Marjoram last week when I was in Santa Barbara and, and we realized we've now made 10 vintages of wine in Santa Barbara together. And Doug's still an acting consultant winemaker and we share cellar space and just amazing how you blink and and a decade has gone by out there even now. And the things that I've learned over there have been great. And the thing that I have taught some people in Santa Barbara County too, I've brought my knowledge from Virginia and direct to consumer Mm -hmm. sales driven stuff to that region and and have helped and give some advice to wineries there and on all that stuff. And so wine is a collaborate. We're all in this business, but it's a tough business and we all respect each other and and I think root each other on to do great things. At least that's what we Absolutely. should. I, I totally agreed, especially when you're talking about relatively fledgling areas that are are, are hitting their strides at, at different times in the lifespan of a region and are, are not competing with neighboring wineries for every last nickel kind of a thing. And I think that there's a there's something Robert Mondavi I think was a, a seminal figure. In, in wine in America, certainly in California wine, where he was, it, it was about building brand Napa. It wasn't just about build, building the Robert Mondavi brand. And 
it, this is going to lead into my to a, a question that I want to talk to you about. That collaborative spirit is something that's I think really important in the wine business. Yeah. Building brands that are bigger than just Paradise Springs or just the Stephen Kent Winery, bigger than Virginia, bigger than Livermore Valley, perhaps. That's from my perspective. It's brand Cabernet Franc. From I'm a, a little envious that. Practically every winery, as you've mentioned, in Virginia has a Cab Franc as an offering. Uh Uh, Whether that becomes, remains, and or becomes the stalwart variety for for Virginia, time is going to tell. And as we've talked before, I I, I believe in a more active um, cajoling, prodding, what have you, my fellow winemakers here in Livermore to, to be involved in the Cab Franc movement in California. What does Cab Franc mean? Gosh, what does it mean? I I think for me in Virginia, it means not fighting something. And when I say that, for years in Virginia, we thought Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay was what we had to produce here in order to become a great American wine region, right? And just the reality of it is they're not the two best to plant here. You have to fight mother nature in the vineyard year in and year out to make a great wine from that. And what Cabernet Franc represents to me is not having to fight mother nature. It's embracing mother nature and running with that and not having to fight that, but also I think growing up and becoming comfortable in your own skin because we don't have to make Cab Sauvignon and Chardonnay to be a great American wine region. We can make Cab Franc and Viognier and Petit Mensang and Petit Verdot and be a great American wine region. And I'm comfortable saying that and putting those wines up against that because that's what we do well here in Virginia. That's who we are. And so I think as one gets older and more mature in life, you stop worrying about what other people think and you do what you do well. And you own that and you're proud of that and you present that in a way and that helps to educate people over time. And, and I think that's where we are in Virginia right now and is why you see Cap Franc received and planted here in the state. And, and that's what it means to me is that we are growing up, we are more mature and we're no longer fighting the things that we need to fight to make great wine here in Virginia. Paradise Springs, Santa Barbara is the brand called Paradise Springs as well? It is. Yes, it is Paradise Springs. It has Santa Barbara on the label, just like Virginia has on the label. So you can very distinctly tell which wines are from which coast and where they're grown. And we're very transparent. If it's a single vineyard wine, we're putting single vineyard on it. If it's AVA, we're putting the AVA on it. So very transparent about where and what we're producing and how. And But yes, it is under the same logo, same name. What besides Pinot Noir are you growing in Santa Barbara? Oh yeah. Our, our, our methodology out there, Santa Rita Hills, we're doing Pinot, Chard and Syrah. So it's cool weather climate doing those three varietals out of there. We do go inland to Happy Canyon, which is so unique about the Santa Barbara region is eight miles away from cool weather, microclimate ABA. You have hot, warm Bordeaux growing weather where it's perfect to grow Cab Sauv, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc. And we're doing those as well. So we have Bordeaux blend, single varietals, Sauvignon Blanc out of there as well. And then we do some one-off stuff. We do a GSM, Grenache Syrah Mavetta. You can do all of the Rhone varietals as well in between Santa Rita Hills and Happy Canyon, Los Olivos AVA, and throughout Santa Barbara County, you can grow the Rhone varietals. So where else in the world do you have such a diverse amount of grape varieties that you can grow? 
I'd argue Santa Barbara might be the most diverse county uh, and wine region in the world. When you talk about- Wes uh, Hagen agrees with you. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I spoke with Wes last week and he made the same point. It's the, what attracted him to the area. He's been making wine there for 30 some odd years off and on and was just- 80 some odd varieties in just a few miles. And it's really yep. extraordinary that you've got some east-west transverse geography as far as valleys are concerned, Santa Inez and that sort of thing that where you've got a lot of onshore wind that keeps areas cool. And then just a few miles in, like you say, you've got perfect Bordeaux growing, at least from a California standpoint, and, and Rhone varieties. That, that, that would be a lot of fun to be a winemaker in a place like that. It's a lot of fun. And, and it's fun to go every year and say, what can we do different for club members this year? We, we did a little pick pool blanc last year for a white wine, which was fun. And, and that was really great. And, and just having that diversity of to be able to try and experiment with some stuff. And I saw a lot of parallels in Santa Barbara County that I see in Virginia from that standpoint, where there's still a lot of market share. There's still an experimentation that can happen with things that are being planted and wines that are being produced in styles. Obviously, Santa Rita Hills and Pinot is the star that has risen to the top there, but it's known, you're getting known for a lot of other different things, which is really cool and exciting from an experimentation standpoint and being artistic and, and getting to, to release that creativity side that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. People, hell, I'm in the business. I forget this. I, I, I read a lot about wine. I forget this sometimes. California wine is so young compared to European wine. 30 years is a career for most people, but it's just, a, it's a, it's a fly speck of time in the history of winemaking, even modern winemaking. When you consider Europe, there are a lot of things that are possible in regions. As you say, VNA didn't quite work out. Maybe it is Cab Franc, maybe it becomes something else. Maybe Livermore Valley becomes not Cab Franc country, but X country. So it, it's, um, it, it's, I was going to say intimidating, but I don't mean intimidating. It, it, it's an interesting environment to be in where you have a lot, you have very little control over the fundamental aspect of our business, which is the growing part. Yeah. You said you're fighting mother nature to get certain things ripe and you're hopeful that most years you're able to make something great despite torrential rain or, or in our area of forest fires and all that kind of stuff. You are, are you making Cab Franc as a single variety in Santa Barbara as well? We are. Yes. The original idea out of Happy Canyon was we were going to do a Petit Verdot single varietal. And that year, the vineyard ended up having Exter, Merlot, Cab Sauv, and Cab Franc. And so Doug, working with Doug, he was like, you should take this. They're selling it at a, a fourth of the price that it normally goes for, and we'll figure out what to do with it. So I said, great. And so we took it and what was born from that ended up being a Bordeaux blend that we do that's Petit Verdot heavy called the Roshi in Santa Barbara. But what that started lending us to was trying the different components, right? And so here we were barrel tasting the different components of it, Merlot, Cab Franc, Cab Sauv, and going, wow, these are all exceptional in their own right, right? And so here you had a wine industry that was known for the movie Sideways that single-handedly killed the Merlot varietal internationally. And we were tasting brilliant Merlot from Barrel. And so I said, let's bottle that up and go against the grain and make a Merlot in the backyard that killed the varietal. And so we actually, we gave it a fun name. We ended up calling it Effing Merlot. On the <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's been a, a big hit, but again, it's sense of place, right? It's part of the story of what right. Merlot is and where we're making that it's sense of place of what we're doing there. And ultimately Cab Franc having those parallels to Virginia made me say, 
let's bottle a separate single varietal Cab Franc out of Santa Barbara. And I think that'll be really fun to tell that story and taste that alongside our Virginia one, which becomes something fun for members and people to do. And actually this year in Virginia, we're going to ship some of those wines back here and do a side-by-side comparison of all of the components of Bordeaux that we're making with Santa Barbara County. Again, it's educating and, and showing people that we do things very well in Virginia, but we do well in Santa Barbara and they are very different because of where they're grown. And that terroir and where you grow things makes a huge difference. I often get people travel to Napa and they're like, oh, I'm staying at the Westin just outside of Napa. How I want to visit your winery. Where is it? And I'm like, <laughs> they just think California <laughs> and it's all right there. So you got to drive about seven and a half hours south and you can come visit me. Right. <laughs> What's the difference between Virginia and, uh, and Santa Barbara Cap Franc in your mind? I think just California Bordeaux varietals are a little more new world in style, right? You guys don't fight that weather like we do here in Virginia and things ripen very ripe out there. So you get a little higher alcohol, a little higher extraction, perfect weather type of stuff where the vines struggle here. You have to have certain sites and there's different terroir in the soil, some more clay here in the soil, and we're much more wet here. And so the wines in Virginia lend themselves a perfect balance between new world and old world, right? It's not that kind of French old worldy style, but it's not that new world California. You really are right in the middle of that where you have nice bright acidity and fruit, but you have that earthiness to it as well, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. And I often say it's hard to describe it because to me, it's distinctively Virginia. And I think that's us growing up saying, this is Virginia Cab Franc. This is who we are. We're not like anywhere else in the world and it's special and you should come taste it. That's a beautiful thing. I I was, I remember the first time that we met was early, I think January of 2023 at the unified tasting in Sacramento that happens every year. And you were there on one of the days there's, there are regional tastings. This is a trade show for those who don't know this. And and if you want to see every tractor that exists or every fermenter that exists, you go to the convention center in in Sacramento. The fun part, though, is that day that we were there, Virginia had a table. I think Illinois had a table. There were probably 10 different regional tables showing wines from all over the country, which uh, was amazing fun. And having tasted your wine and a couple of uh, Barbersville, I think was there and a couple of other producers that you guys were pouring. The wines were, were uniformly delicious. And the, and I didn't know it then. I know it now that Cab Franc plays a, a big role, the biggest role from an acreage standpoint in Virginia. And then you came out to Cab Franc Capalooza in the first annual Cab Franc Capalooza in June. Did, did you enjoy that event? You did a great job. Absolutely. Being a champion of Cab Franc and getting so many Cab Francs from different regions was really cool and special. And it was an honor to be there and an honor that Virginia had a seat at the table. I thought that was really cool and something we need to do more of as a region is get our wines out and educate that we exist. Absolutely. We we really loved having you there personally. You're a great guy and you were pouring wines from a couple of different wineries, three or three, I think, or four. And the wines were really good. Very different than California in a way. They certainly are of, they, they taste like Cab Franc. They feel like Cab Franc. And there might be a little bit of some of maybe some Loire Valley kind of influences in terms of overall heft and bigness of the wines. And we, from a from a, a personal winemaking style standpoint, at Stephen Kent, we're we're always we're working against Mother Nature in a way in that we don't believe in big gigantic Cab Franc. We just think once you get to the big gigantic Cab Franc 
point in this vineyard or cellar, you've made a lousy Cabernet Sauvignon. And so we're trying to figure out ways to farm so we can get fruit ripe earlier. So we've got more and natural acidity, less alcohol, more pace length, all those beautiful kind of herbal notes, ripe herbal notes, but herbal notes nonetheless that that really demarc Cab Franc. And I was I very impressed really- with the Cab Francs coming out of Livermore. I, I think you hit the head right on the head. Santa Barbara is that newer world style, I think, and what's coming out of Happy Canyon because the heat, Napa, we've all had those wines, but they were unique coming out of where you are. And, and you're right. They had more natural acidity, better with food. And I was really impressed with what you guys are doing there. So a lot of parallels between Livermore and Virginia, I think, in that regard with Cab Franc being Thank unique, you. doing well. I, I like, I, I don't know um, how healthy it is to be really quixotic about things and really love to tilt at windmills, but you know, you, you get an opportunity maybe once or twice in your career, I think, to, to put a flag in the ground and say, this is who we're going to be, despite despite what the, the overall industry says you ought to be. The California perspective is one that's cab solve dominant or Chardonnay dominant. I love the fact that Virginia is going a different direction, is a different area. And I love the idea, love the fact you guys are thoughtful about what it is you're doing. And you're patient enough to see kind of things through to a point that they don't work, maybe, and and you switch up. Uh, I, I I can't wait to get out there, see you out there, and see more of the wineries. It's a it's a region I think that people who love Cap Franc should definitely be looking at. And look forward to your being at Cap Franc Capalooza in May here again in Livermore with us. And yes, uh, Excellent. I really appreciate your time, Kirk. This has been a lot of fun. I, I know that the readers and followers of uh, Wine Saves Lives are going to enjoy this conversation. Appreciate the time. Keep warm. Thank you. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. And I, I would love to have you to Virginia. I would love to have everyone who's listening to this come to Virginia. I think there's a lot of great things happening here from food and wine standpoint when you get out of the city into the country. And uh, people don't realize Virginia is the fifth largest wine producing state in the country now. And so come discover it early so you can say you were in on the ground floor. I'm excited to be back out there with you at Cab Franc Palooza in a a few months. And thanks for having me today.